Today on Government Matters, driving for success in the biggest remote work environment ever. State Department CIO Stuart McGuigan on his agency's new normal. A whole-of-government approach to the national security landscape of the future. Congressman Mike Waltz tells you what his colleagues from both parties want to see. And technology isn't the military's only data challenge. Another one's talent. The director of human capital for Army Futures Command reviews her people's strategy. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The State Department's new cross-functional task force will look at the department's approach to remote work in the pandemic. It'll help the agency identify next steps for the future of information technology. Stuart McGuigan's the chief information officer at the State Department. Stuart, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What all do you want to get out of this cross-functional task force? What are they examining and who all is involved? So like every other agency and many companies, uh, when we went to maximum telework, we really had to scramble to get all the pieces and parts uh, working together. Uh, fortunately, we had a lot of infrastructure in place that enabled us to continue to operate. But, you know, we were going uh, hell for leather and getting things done, getting things uh, online. And so when we had a moment, we sat back and said, you know, what, what, what do we like about what we've done that extends beyond the pandemic? We did a huge survey uh, and a little bit to our surprise found that um, there were quite a few people who thought they were even more productive teleworking. And uh, the majority of the people were at least as productive or more productive teleworking. We said, all right, there's got to be something in that, that can help us with productivity. Let's put together a cross-functional group that represents not just technology, but HR and finance and legal and all those different equities so we could come up with a, a, a plan to maintain the very best of the things that we did. I am always leery of self-assessment surveys, though, Stuart, after I learned that 80% of Americans think that they're above average drivers. It's not mathematically possible. How do you measure within your organization objectively productivity to make sure that what people think they're doing, they're actually doing? You know, when, when we're online, as opposed to uh, sitting in meeting rooms, uh, every bit of what we're doing is, is actually captured. And, uh, you know, privacy is important. We don't, you know, look at what our individual employees are doing, but we can measure uh, how active they are online. And I think one of the initial concerns with maximum telework in the pandemic was people would work too hard, they burn out. And we certainly saw uh, online hours expanding well beyond the normal workday. And luckily that's leveled out a little bit, but we can just see sheer raw activity numbers are increasing. Um, when we look at our processes, since we've had to move them online, we're much better able to get a timestamp at the beginning of a process and then measure when it's completed. So we're starting to be able to collect the productivity data 
that we've never had before that'll enable us to aim our automation and process improvement efforts at exactly the right things to improve our throughput at the State Department. I plugged uh, this conversation at the beginning of this program as a discussion about the biggest ro uh, remote work environment ever because you're not just operating remotely from Foggy Bottom, you're operating remotely from I don't know, 200 and some countries around the world, I believe. What does that look like from a technology perspective and what's the gap between what you expect to achieve at some point in the future and today? So we're actually looking at that uh, global footprint and there was no telling how well it was gonna work. And I think we were pleasantly surprised at how readily people pivoted to working from their residence. Uh, for uh, FTEs, you know, we, we know what their residents are like. They all have uh, internet and Wi-Fi. But for many of our foreign nationals, which are really the backbone of the workforce overseas, we weren't really sure how that would work. And while there's always opportunity for improvement, uh, it, it actually worked pretty well. People worked from their home, got their jobs done, whether in technology or in diplomacy or operations. And it, it, was, it was an amazing thing. You told Jason Miller at Federal News Network recently that another challenge that you're up against is developing standards or levels of acceptability for a minimally viable product. What's the issue with MVP at State Department? What is it that you're trying to get people to accept culturally, Stuart? So this has been the hardest thing in my career for people to adopt to, but it's critical for Agile. Uh, Agile requires you focus on an initial release of software or technology that has only the essential features needed to test out the concept, needed to, make, to meet the business demand. And people have trouble giving up on nice to have requirements. So you end up with initial releases that are much more in terms of functionality than you need. And the longer you delay putting something in production, putting something in users' hands, the longer you're delaying getting feedback and so because this was an existential set of requirements, we had to make applications that had only been available in the office on our networks, available through uh, browsers, through people in their homes, securely, safely. And until those applications were made available, people couldn't work. So we didn't have to argue about bells and whistles. We just said, what is the minimum amount of capability that we can securely provide access do that and move on to the next one. And we found that our velocity was just incredible. I would put the speed of delivery of my colleagues in IT at the State Department up against any group that I've ever worked with. And that's kind of where I wanted to go to finish. We have about a minute left, Stuart. Is that MVP concept, do you think, harder, easier, or neutral for folks to accept in the State Department and the federal government more broadly compared to the private sector? I think uh, we have our advantage in the State Department because we have a lot of people who are drawn to uh, expeditionary diplomacy, who are uh, innovators, who uh, make things work in very extreme environments. So the idea that you're gonna patch things together in order to have something work to execute on our mission, that's not too foreign for us. And for other agencies, they have a very similar uh, circumstance. For people who are used to uh, much more traditional development processes and, and working in Washington where we have you know the infrastructure we want at our fingertips, might be a little bit more of a challenge. But I like to think that it's actually uh, compatible with the culture of the State Department long term. Stuart McGuigan, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to see you again. My pleasure.
Up next, keeping the military ready to fight tonight while it plans for the future of war. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a member of Congress's Future Defense Task Force tells you what both parties agree on. You're watching ABC7. Congress has a new list of ideas for outpacing China and using artificial intelligence. The Future of Defense Task Force includes members of both parties on Capitol Hill. They're calling for a whole-of-government approach to national security. Congressman Michael Waltz is Republican representing Florida's 6th District. Congressman, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. You and your colleagues frame this in very stark terms. The free world order the U.S. has led for more than 70 years is now in danger of becoming a historical outlier, and you frame your work on the task force as the beginning of a difficult yet necessary conversation. Around what do you think that conversation should turn, Congressman? Well, I think we've never before faced an adversary like we face in China led by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, where we have been so intertwined economically, so dependent on so many things for our modern economy uh, as we face with China. Uh, we, we didn't face that with the Soviet Union, certainly not with Germany or Japan, but we do with China from our manufacturing to our basic minerals uh, to our pharmaceuticals and as we do seen coming through the COVID pandemic, uh, even basic things like face masks and gowns for our hospitals. So uh, we have a real challenge ahead. Uh, some are calling for uh, de complete decoupling. Uh, regardless of how we move forward, I do think we have to make big efforts to bring those supply chains home. I note that uh, there are members, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, members of both parties working on this task force equivalently. And you and your colleagues write, the nation should reconfigure a coordinated whole-of-government strategy to update the national security structure. The reimagination would partner the Department of State with the Department of Defense to ensure diplomatic parity and leadership. Is this the vision that Robert Gates outlined, uh, that he tagged soft power in the first decade of the century, or do you and your colleagues envision something else, sir? Well, soft power is certainly a component of it. Uh, uh, that, is, that is one piece. But this is, I think, even broader. Uh, this is not just diplomatic, information, military, economic, but it's really about a clash of our values. Uh, the freedom of the press, uh, the freedom of individuals to set their own course in life. Uh, we're seeing that truly being challenged, not just uh, in China or in the region, but around the world, as the Chinese Communist Party aggressively seeks to take over key international institutions that set global standards. Uh, the reliance uh, on the dollar for our currency is being challenged. The open internet is being challenged. Uh, we saw uh, the fact that the WHO uh, didn't really call the pandemic what it was because of Chinese influence. The UN, key human rights uh, 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 committees are also uh, being challenged. So. This is really about do we want a world 
uh, not being led by free nations, but being led by an authoritarian uh, regime that will set the stage for future generations. I mentioned artificial intelligence, and you and your colleagues focus on AI uh, quite tightly in this work. And one of the sub-recommendations that you make is requiring every major defense acquisition program to evaluate at least one AI or autonomous alternative prior to funding. Do you worry that there's maybe a risk that the department will go in, will, will take this solution and go in search of a problem rather than addressing it in the spirit in which you and, and your colleagues intend? Well, that's always a risk, and that's why oversight is so critical. Uh, you know, many of these, uh, my colleagues on this task force, frankly, are some of, I think, the younger, more tech-savvy members. Uh, I hope to see all of them on both sides of the aisle. Uh, continue to, to to keep this focus. So we'll we'll stay on top of it when it comes to uh, the Defense Department's procurement. But again, more broadly, you know, the Chinese are making massive investments into artificial intelligence, uh, and that is going to affect everything from how we deal with cancer, how we deal with future medications, uh, to how we deal with autonomous warfare. You know, right now, in keeping I think with Western values, we will have someone always in that loop, so to speak, a human making that final call, but we can see an adversary that doesn't do so and therefore is able to do things faster and more efficiently. Uh, but you know, I think at, at some point we could face a decision, how do we go head to head with a foe that doesn't have a human in the loop? Uh, will we set aside our, our values in order to do so these are tough questions ahead and one that, you know, again, that we have to stay on top of. You've mentioned China several times in this conversation. The national defense strategy is full of references to China as a competitor and potential future adversary. And you and your colleagues rightfully reference NATO on a number of occasions as a, a model of the, uh, the allies and friends that we should keep. In the 1950s through the 70s, uh, CETO, the Southeast Asia Trade Organization, existed as kind of an attempt to model the same kind of thing in, in that region of the world. Is it time to maybe try to draw something new like that today, Congressman? I think we're already moving down the, that road, and I want to give kudos to the administration for doing so, the Trump administration. You know, there's been a revival of the Quad Dialogue, which is India. Uh, Japan, the United States, and Australia. I think that'll form the nucleus. But we've also had a, a series of, I think, very promising engagements with Vietnam, with the Philippines, with Indonesia, you know, all of whom are very concerned and alarmed about uh, China's very aggressive behavior, whether it's in the South China Sea, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it is the genocide that is going on with the Uyghurs in the Western provinces, Mongolia, you know, the hoarding of resources, water resources in particular, when it comes to Southeast Asia. So we're starting to see, uh, you know, a move towards, again, towards a free and open and fair uh, kind of global order or one that's dominated by an authoritarian regime, where if you say anything critical, like we saw even with the NBA or with some of Hollywood, you know, you have an immediate backlash. Uh, we can't, have that kind of environment around the world. We can't have that as a world order. We have to be able to, to settle our differences uh, uh, openly and fairly. Um, so yes, 
bottom line is I, I do see us moving in a NATO-like structure in Southeast Asia, and that's in, that's in I think, uh, almost all of the country's interests. Congressman, there's so much more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining me, and congratulations to you and your colleagues on this work. Uh, thank you so much. Up next, the Army needs more data warriors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the top people leader at Futures Command tells you how she plans to find them. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Army Futures Command has a new software factory in the works focused on training tech talent in Austin, Texas. Futures Command is working on stocking it and the rest of AFC with talent. Kate Kelly is Chief Human Capital Officer at Army Futures Command. Kate, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You said recently that you're in the enlightenment process uh, in, the, in bringing talent in. What do you want to learn from this enlightenment process? I think what we are focused on right now is how the Army is changing the way it thinks about talent and, more importantly, changing the way we leverage talent to achieve our future ends. I think the Futures Command uh, model that we've set in place is a really exciting one for the Army because it's challenging our thinking and our current processes with respect to talent management. It's important for us to make sure that we are pushing the envelope as far as we can, staying on par with our near-peer competitors and modernizing our Army. That demands, quite frankly, the best and the brightest. And so we are trying to do what we can here at Futures Command to make that happen. What are the specialties in which you need the talent the most or you need the most depth of talent, anything like that, Kate? You know, I think where we are today is a recognition that the intersection of uh, the technology talent base, um, STEM-focused fields for sure, uh, data analytics, absolutely, and then of course, what we're trying to do here in Austin is develop the software factory talent base in order to make this a meaningful process that brings the talent base to the Army that we need. And so some of those uh, skill sets are absolutely the ones that we're looking for. It is, um, it's not lost on us, though, that this is an iterative, constantly evolving process. And so these are not mutually exclusive talent streams. These are things that are going to change over time as we develop and push into even newer technologies. How much of your talent base now is Army original and how much of it is coming from outside? Where What I mean by Army original is people who are already Army personnel, either civilian or uniform, and you're training them up. And how many are you bringing in from outside? And what would you like that to look like, say, two or five years from now, Kate? So that's an excellent question, and I'm really glad you asked me that because it's part of the enlightenment process that I talked about. So there were some myths, I would say, within the Army that um, centered on the belief that we needed to find this talent outside the Army in, say, the private sector or in um, academia. And what we have found is that we actually have this talent in the Army. It's just that we assessed it in and we put it in a different um, branch or career field. Uh, yet what we've seen is that we went out and asked for people interested in volunteering for some of these opportunities. Um, this particular one I'm talking about is software developers. And we found a lot of people who understand this coding world and software development world. They've been doing it on the side in some cases. They've been trained on it prior, but decided to go into the military for a variety of other personal and patriotic reasons. And so we have found the talent resident within the Army. The challenge we have today 
is we have to take it out of that particular career field that it's in and reskill it, um, enable it to then leverage the talents that they're interested in, and then inject it back into the Army. And so we're excited about the fact that we're able to do that with our existing talent. Now, here in Futures, we are civilian and military, but we're really excited about the fact that we're be, we're finding this talent within our active component, our reserve component, and our National Guard component for training purposes. Given that you have that you're in Austin, where this talent's in demand, not just from Futures Command and not just from the military more broadly, but from the private sector as well, how are you nurturing and, and with an eye toward retaining this talent, Kate? Right. So one of the biggest challenges you have in the federal workspace is your constant uh, com competition uh, with the private sector and what they can offer in terms of incentive packages. However, what I would tell you is we have this one really great advantage, and that is the, the interest and the patriotism of, of a lot of our nation that is still interested in serving their country in some way. And so what we've been able to do is really reach out to the universities and to the high school communities and try to educate people that you can serve in the military in a variety of ways that is not your traditional uh, soldier concept that you might uh, visualize. In other words, you can come in as an engineer, you can come in as a software developer, you can come in and be somebody who's helping us uh, design and develop future concepts. And so it's really exciting to see how we're doing that. And here in the Austin community, what is so advantageous for us is the ability to take advantage of the resident tech base that is already here from a training perspective. We can walk right outside our door and find a variety of entities who are available and talented and interested in helping us upskill our own workforce. So it's been a real exciting place to be. Kate Kelly of Army Futures Command, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. and Thank you so much for this important topic. Thanks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our newscasts by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.